You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. I'm Kelly Daniels. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dan Lipman. Thank you for welcoming me. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. You know how good I am. I told you uh, right before I hit record how, how good slightly I'm feeling. Green, but very, yeah, slightly green, but very solid. Kelly, <laughs> Not very sound, solid, but anyway, yeah. Well, go I ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm broadcasting from a new location, as you could tell from the sound of my voice. It's my office on the campus of Northern Illinois University. Go Huskies. Right on, man. That is really exciting. Do you have a window? Or are you looking out on you know, students walking about? You know, I do have a window. I'm on the 10th floor, so I see no students, but I can see across a parking lot, which is full. Neat. And, uh, and a dormitory. Neat again. Yeah. I like it, especially that parking lot view. It's beautiful. Yeah. I can see my own car from here. Uh-huh. Oh, so if anybody steals something, you know the best thing to steal when you're a kid? The, uh, the caps that go over the, the, valve, the um, tire valves. Did oh, you, on bicycles. Did you ever used to steal those? Uh, we used to make mischief, yeah, and then we would flatten like other kids' bike tires and stuff. It's no, cool. I would steal like the steel, like the silvery kind of cool-looking ones on fancy cars and put it oh, on no, my bike. Did, that. It was did your... you collect them? Um, I just always wanted to have a couple cool ones on my bike at any time, and so uh, I would just kind of get two, and then I would be good with it until I, got, you know, somebody stole them from me, and I'd have to get new ones, things like that. Right. Yep. Oh man, the fifties are crazy. So hey, let me just—that <laughs> was funny, sort of, because um, I'm old, right? That was the joke. Well, it was the seventies, really, but yeah, I think it probably was the seventies, wasn't it? Maybe the eighties. Maybe the '80s could have been the if '80s when I was doing, doing that. it. In the, if you were still doing it in the '80s, that's kind of sad. Yeah, I do think it was sad. I I do think I was sad in between 1980 and 1990. <laughs> it was pretty sad. It was the Reagan era. We were all sad. Yes, it was the Reagan era. There was polo shirts and just the bad hair. Yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of bad things going on, or um, unbeautiful sort of fashions and stuff. But let me just jump right to a question. We're going to, I'm taking a shot at, we're both taking a shot at being, I guess, kind of serious. Maybe in me saying that it'll derail the whole seriousness. But here's the question. What is literature good for? And you're allowed to answer this time. Just like, does it have a use? Does it have a purpose? Yeah. Well, the way you phrased it, I hear that song (laughs) in my head, you know, absolutely nothing. Yeah, that was unintentional um, to suggest that maybe it is useless. Um, we don't believe that, obviously, because we're no. writers. But I think we need to to make this interesting. We have to entertain that perspective, at least, you know. I think um, what it's used for is maybe often overblown and maybe can't be quite stated quite so clearly. Did, okay. Am I supposed to answer the whole thing now? Or uh, Yeah, I thought we would just jump right into the conversation. I think what literature does is it, uh, as opposed to, let's say, uh, movies or TV or something is that it gives you a chance to sort of process what it is that you're trying to work on. Don't you always sort of gravitate towards novels that are vaguely close to something, not 
that you're experiencing directly, but some sort of that speak to some sort something about your existence or something about your what you're going through at the moment? Uh, yeah, I, th- I mean, I like to read, and uh, that's part of why because it's um, a very intimate and personal relationship I end up having with the with the book in ways that I don't think other media right um, replicate. But um, I guess you're talking about it being useful on a one to one basis. I'm I'm thinking more like societally. Like, is oh. it you know what is it doing for the human for America for your hometown for human beings in the 21st century. You know what I mean? That kind of big level, um, you know, having a function in society kind of thing. Global. What's it doing globally? Yeah, that's a good. And question. I guess the, then we have to sort of separate the idea between what. Let's figure out what are you talking about by literature. You're just talking about anything that's slapped between the two hard covers, or what are you? What are you talking about? The I'm talking book? about stuff that isn't. That is called literature that does isn't okay. Here's the way to one way to put it: if it's making a bunch of money and it's selling a bunch of units, then nobody has to justify it because in a capitalist society, then that is it's already justified. You know, if it makes right. money, it's good. I'm talking about the stuff that doesn't make money. Is are these kind of small, difficult books, or maybe not small books, but uh, books that have a limited audience because they're difficult and they ask difficult questions and they force the reader to jump through some difficult hoops. Um, maybe that's what I'll, I'll call literature, just for the sake of this discussion, not, not trying to say that that is you know, the ultimate definition of literature. Can you cite a specific example? Uh, I mean, you're not talking about, like, let's say, um, you know... Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I would say, I would go the other way. I would, um, I've actually given this talk on Uncle Tom's Cabin and, and compare really? it. Yeah, and I, I compare it to, it's incredibly important to history. Most people consider it a very poorly written book. And, and um, inter- it, it galvanized support for abolition and um, sort of demonized slavers, I think, in a in a real good way, I suppose, if you can say it that way. But it also gave rise to all kinds of stereotypes because it relied on stereotypes to make its really kind of ham-fisted point. So there's that. On the, I compare that to uh, that book to the work of Stephen Crane, who was writing around the same time, um, roughly. And he, uh, maybe a little after, actually, I'd have to look at the dates, but Stephen Crane was very interesting. He was, his career is, 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 uh, a lot of his books weren't popular at the time and he was really rejected by the the big literati there because he wasn't good at making a simple, straightforward point about society. He would always kind of fall into more complex, um, kind of notions and impressionistic writing styles that didn't, uh, that didn't further political agendas very well. So I would say that he is more the literature that I'm talking about that actually resists making galvanizing large groups of people into a political point because it's so his work is so kind of mixed and difficult and and kind of honest and really gets at the gray areas. And a lot of people would say his his work didn't do anything. Like it didn't didn't cause it didn't any society. 
Yeah. That's what you're saying. Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think he I think he was a little later. I think he was after the Civil War. Like eight, like 1890s and stuff like that. That I think that's right. right. So obviously, then, therefore, by definition, he'd be after Uncle Tom's Cabin. But so, I mean, maybe he's serving a different purpose. But let's think about like a, a book that's basically contemporaneous would be Moby Dick. And that's a book that's still around. It's a book that's hard, still hard to sort of explain what it's about. Yeah. What do you what, was that? Did that change anything? I, I felt changed after I read it. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it changed literature and the way that we talk about what a book can do. Um, and I do think that the individual chapters we can really get into um, and uh, have a discussion that um, kind of makes our lives richer on a one-to-one -one basis. But did the book change society in any big way? I sort of doubt it, you know? I sort of doubt that it change the way that politics and foreign policy is all those kind of big, you know, um, meta concerns, I suppose, with, uh, but you know, it, society. It has given us, it's sort of given us sort of, um, allegorical structure to when we describe a, a captain Ahab, we know exactly what we're talking about. I, I it's hard to uh, imagine what a political discussion would be like without the phrase, you know, like so-and-so's big white whale, something along those lines. So maybe it's by giving us a prism to look through, it's, it's contributed. Yeah, giving us language um, yeah. to, to use. Uh, others have said, I heard Wendell Berry once say that literature is there to revitalize language and that the writer must always be on guard against falling into cliches and group speak. And that's why you say, you're, instead of using the cliche... You need to, the good writer comes up with a fresh way to say the same thing sometimes. And, and my students mm -hmm. will say, why bother? Like, it's easier. Everybody says it this one way. Because the cliche stops meaning anything after a while. And yeah, it starts just... becoming a truth without any, any information behind the truth in a way. It's like more of an attitude than an idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You don't even hear it. It's just sort of like a static crackle when you come across... I was thinking yeah. about, I was imagining this conversation we were going to have, like I do sometimes before these podcasts, and, and it never goes the way that I thought it might. And uh -huh. so it's just something to do while I'm driving to campus, you know. And uh, But I remember, well, I, for some I reason... Right when you're uh, having your bowel movement right before we go on. <laughs> it's a good, I, yes, I think about this podcast and it's just, I'm flushed out, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> everything kind of gets right out. Um I, for some reason, I thought of that little cultural meme kind of thing where they go mind blown and they go and they put their fingers on their forehead and, mm -hmm. and, and move the hand out away from the forehead by, while opening the fingers. Um, was that specific enough? You know what I'm talking about, right? I think I do. I can picture mind it. Mind blown. Meme is, just a, meme is just a visual version of a cliche, right? Yes, exactly. And um, I've seen that passed around and it maybe it came from some sitcom first and somebody made a YouTube clip of it and put some words on it. And everybody does that now. It's this shared thing that has become kind of a joke. It doesn't really mean your mind's blown when you do that. It's usually a sarcastic yeah, way of saying, wrong. yeah. And, and I was just thinking that those, <laughs> that's such a bad thing that the way that we talk to each other, how often it is just, um, 
how often it, it, we use, we fall back on popular culture, little body movements and sayings and expressions and gestures. And when you're when you use something like that, you you are not being authentic at all. In fact, you're not being yourself. You're just and and I'd like to think about how often and how much of our lives are devoted to just passing on things we've heard other people say, especially in the media, and not even really thinking about those things. And oh yeah, I've been in bars where I've had conversations or in, I've overheard conversations and I've been in them where basically everything, we're just trading off expressions like, what's up? How are you? Been better. Living the dream. I got that. You got that right. And, you know, it takes 10 minutes before anybody's even says anything that's just not cookie cutter. Yeah. And I guess I, I like to think that, I certainly think that writing for me is a good practice of just reminding myself to think for myself. And um, it may be, a little ironic, though, in if what I'm saying is you, you should read my books because or my stuff that I write. So I only have one book, so I can't say books. <laughs> so I'm just sort of projecting into the future. Um, right. That was the saddest moment on this podcast today. Well, I know it, it was sad. It was uh, having to admit that I wasn't the author that I was kind of imagining myself to be for a second behind this microphone. <laughs> um, but just, uh, I'm asking other people to listen to my ideas, but I do like to think that in reading literature, you know, difficult material is very different from watching the Big Bang Theory, where it isn't, literature isn't meant to come up with a bunch of little cultural memes that everybody imitates. Um, instead, I think it, it causes people or allows people to look through a different through a lens they've never looked through before and seeing the world in a fresh way and the more books you read the more lenses you've looked through and and it, it just makes you on an individual basis it makes people have richer lives i suppose and uh, makes them better thinkers and all that kind of stuff um well that's that's where i started as an approach to the topic you know that i just i it never occurred to me that you were talking about a more global perspective of literature but I, I can tell you that personally, I've been significantly changed by several books. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the whole global thing is I'm trying to think like, let's say, for the lack of a better word, a Republican. You know, why? what the hell is good for that? Like a Republican whose son wants to um, major in creative writing and, and, the, and the father, just making this all male, I suppose, um, and the father is just like, absolutely not. No kid of mine is going to major in creative writing unless you double major in business. And that's the negotiate. We get a lot of that here at the college. Sort of, yeah, but that's also a stereotype. I'm sure there's plenty of Republicans who appreciate the arts. Yes, I think that's right. But, but nevertheless, let's, just, let, let's go from a, not a stereotype, but let's go from a, a, a typical conservative talking point position. Like, you know, okay. and that's not, I'm not talking stereotypes. I'm talking policy. Look through the House of Representatives and see how many people take stands against supporting. I guess I'm, I'm slowly getting into another question about public policy. Um, and I guess I, we might as well go there. I was thinking of saving that to the end. But should literature be supported, the kind of literature that isn't making money, should it be supported with taxpayer money? Yeah. 
That's something I've thought about a lot. I don't really think about it in terms of books because I see I see so few books being supported by taxpayer money. But I, but what about like art galleries and stuff like that? I mean, you, you could make the, the same argument. Government supported art just as a concept sort of makes me nervous. On the other hand, I don't think it can survive without. Well, National Endowment of the Arts grants go to go to writers. And so those are like 50 grand at a time to go yeah, so that somebody can take a year off of their academic job and write a book. And so that's direct writer. money. What? Not this writer. No, and no. I did many, many times. I've never applied and yet I still feel slighted for <laughs> yeah. not having been given one, you know. Right. Um, there's a friend of mine, I'm writing a little letter of recommendation, who's applying for a $5,000 artist grant for his state. And it's a state that really supports the arts in ways that most don't. Minnesota. Um, yes, good job. And um, there's, uh, it, so there is, and, and actually a lot of the small presses that we would like to get our books into, books, plural, the ones that aren't published, um, have, uh, get money from the, from taxpayer, taxpayers, uh, National Endowment of the Arts and, and probably some other. So there, there is money going to art, to writers and it, it isn't finding their way into our pockets. Um, but I suspect a lot of literary journals get some support from, you know, various public money funds, monies. I love how accountants say monies. Where's yeah. the monies? <laughs> I want to say those guys. Somehow it's 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 easier to look at like a piece of public art and then see that plaque on the bottom that says this was uh, funded by a grant from the uh, Big Bottom Fund, and it's it's harder to find it on books, I guess. The Big Bottom Fund. Well, I'm I'm, yeah, I'm I'm sure that fund exists. It's about big bottoms. I think you've withdrawn from that a number of times. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I like that fund. I was thinking of a rich person. Don't they all have big bottoms? Probably. Nah. They they, these days, the rich people get li get the liposuction. Yeah, you're probably. Their bottoms right. get they're big, but big and shapely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I, How maybe about, it's grant from the big shapely bottom fund. Yes. Excellent. Haunch. The big shapely the muscular haunch fund. I'd like to hear that on NPR, you know, brought to you by the, the Big Bottom, the Big Shapely Bottom Fund, shaping <laughs> bottoms since 1920. You know what? If we get super rich, we can make that fund and we can give it to NPR and they'll have to say that. They'll have to say it, yeah. Because they'll take, they're not going to say no to the money. <laughs> That's, you can count on NPR for not saying no to the money. Yep. Well, um, who would? Hey, but back to the question. I mean, like, okay, first off, we have to concede there's not a like the the percentage of public money going to fund literature is infinitesimal compared to what you know the amount of money that that's out there right for sure yep but the theory of the thing the idea of the thing should the public does the public have an interest the common man the common woman in having literature out there that isn't necessarily market driven yeah. Uh, I'm going to assume you're actually asking. I think I understand the argument, but I'm I'm not 100% sure I, I like it. I like the idea. I'm not sure that I would want my taxes going towards some horrible art that, that isn't – I mean, you and I know a lot of, uh, let's say, not financially successful artists, and they're doing okay. They have to have other jobs, and they're getting their work out there, people who are interested – well, what is the difference between that and having some sort of big government money infusion? 
And then at, the, at what point, you know, let's under this particular government, are they going to start saying, well, you can't write about this. You only have to write about that. You got to call concentration camps, Holocaust centers. You know, you got to use their language. Yeah. I'm not sure I like, I, I see the, I see in a beautiful world how it would be beneficial, but boy, we're sure not living in that world. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter what uh, the, the problem comes up that the, fu- the art is funded. It, what it funds is not what necessarily I want to read. And so, and there's no way that they can get it to where everybody, okay, here is a universally agreed upon piece of art that we're going to fund that every single person in the United States that pays taxes loves this. Yeah. And so if, once you realize that's impossible, you have to say, okay, we're going to try to fund a wide variety of types of art, but who gets to decide and somebody's going to be left out. It's never going to be a fair process. Um, so yeah, I, I personally don't mind uh, some of my tax money going to, to just, you know, throw money around randomly, even if it's, funds a bunch of books that I think are completely lame and, and the wrong people seem to get the awards and, and whatever, you know, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, and I, I don't, I don't trust the marketplace and I don't trust the government programs to make good art. I don't trust either one of them. (laughs) I guess what I trust is the individual artist who busts her ass to, and, and make stuff the kind of person that we're talking to in this program, you know, who's, right. who's writers with day jobs that are going to keep chasing their vision. Like, um, you know, just those kind of people that there's that guy that, that died and they found this amazing sculpture in his barn. that's in the Smithsonian now, but he was just some regular guy, some auto mechanic or something who spent all his time, like making this thing out of like tin cans and stuff. And it's this beautiful, like it's the cover of one of Dennis Johnson's books. You know what I'm talking about? No. It's this giant thing. It's this big, you know, kind of like 30 feet wide by 20 feet tall, intricately created. And it's got this long title, the third, the, the something throne, the third thrones, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, the guy made it because he was the throne of the third heaven of the nations? Yes. Wow. I'm looking at it online right now. It's at the Smithsonian Renwick Gallery. That yeah. guy made that in secret, died before it was ever revealed. Now that is, to me, that's art, like in a way. It's like somebody doing it because they're obsessed, not because they've gotten a grant and not because it's their career. Right. Um, and I don't know that the marketplace or government funding addresses that. And, and so I think the real art will, will make it somehow. And, um, so, but I don't mind some of my money going to that. I mean, it goes to a lot of worse things, put it that way. I guess you're right. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather have the, uh, the, the, uh, works, whatever that, you know, the WP photographs that, uh, Lang took and stuff like that in the 1920s, then, then, a then a new drone being built or something like that. I, I agree with you, but yeah, by definition, sort of like you're just not going to get the best art when it's sort of sucking. I want at the some more. Teeth. I want some more Dale oh, to you, you cut off my great phrase. Oh, suckling I'm sorry. I said suckling the government teat. Oh, that's a good phrase. That's actually kind of a 
verging on a cliche that we said we don't like. I've heard that before. I've never heard it before. I have. I've heard it. I've seen it. I've seen there's a meme. I'm going to Google it. Suckling at the government. Te- yeah, you're right. 50,000 uh, in one. But yeah, you're right. I retract it. Gabe, cut that out. <laughs> oh, Lordy Lord. Don't really, Gabe. So funny. Yeah, keep it by all means. For sure, keep, keep it. everything foolish that Dan says <laughs> and make it a little louder. Make clearer. it a little more foolish. Do make it a little louder, though. I don't like how I'm buried all the time in the mix. I don't think that's right. I think that I'm quieter than you are. I think it's your, it's our minds make ourselves seem quieter. That's interesting. Yeah. Could I, be. And sometimes I'm like, when I'm at my best, I'm like mumbling, and you can't hear it at all, but I know it's funny because I'm like getting into the mode. And, if I get a grant, I'm going to write an essay about this. Mm-hmm. What's your revision, man? My revision is a little bit self-serving, and I almost didn't say it because I don't want to say something good about me again. But in the last episode, <laughs> or maybe it was two episodes ago, I said that I had won a Plimpton Prize from the Paris Review. Yeah. Do you recall that? Uh, yes, I remember you talking about that a lot. No, I only mentioned it one time. It's not It's not technically true. What? It's, Okay, the- now we're gonna have to like we're gonna have to get a lawyer now. Okay. Yeah. Plimpton Prize. Let me see if it's if you can Google. It. I Google it. And I'm not actually listed. Here's what happened. I won something called the Paris Review Discovery Prize because uh, the Paris Review Discovery Prize was renamed the Plimpton Prize when George Plimpton died, but it's the same prize. It's the same money. Oh. And uh, I actually wrote to the to them at one point, and I said, "Hey, can I can I call myself a Plimpton Prize winner, even though it was called the Paris Review Discovery Prize?" And the editor at the time, really, what I was trying to do was remind them that I existed because I wanted them to write back and say, "Hey, yeah, do whatever you want and send us some fiction." But instead, what he wrote back and said, "Hey, yeah, do whatever you want." Although I think Paris Review Discovery Prize sounds better because it's uh, it more closely addresses what it actually is that you won. But do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did when I, even though I miss slightly misrepresented myself to, from one viewpoint, I do have permission to do that from the Paris review. That's my revision. This was a very good way to just bring yourself back into the conversation and seem like you're being humble, but you're not. So I, I applaud this revision. Thank you. And I think that, and I applaud your attempt to get their attention and, and in some kind of a sick way, I applaud the editor for just not even going there. And, uh, you know, so I think everybody was sort of playing their cards pretty well. And, you know, what happened happened. If he had a rubber stamp that said, do whatever the fuck you want, he just would have hit it once and mailed it off. But yeah. What's yours? (laughs) Uh, Mine is uh, last last episode that I listened to, the the Shabon episode. Um, It started with uh, a, a topic that we probably shouldn't should have cut out, but it was about um, urinating. And I missed the opportunity to say micturate. And oh, I yeah. just wish I could go back and say micturate instead of pee, like peeing that's like sort of childish and sort of gross. And so micturate has a little bit of a, you know, there's the science thing, but also the, the Big Lebowski. Um, the Big Lebowski the big says... Angle. Yeah, I think it actually just means spilling water. I, I think it's not... Micturate? Peeing. No, it means pee. All right, I'm going to look it up. Do well. My information comes from a biology professor. It means urinate. So you're wrong. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. 
Um, so anyway, that's my revision. Should we, let me get back to the question then, unless uh, you want to talk about micturating some more. Uh, I want to tell you, uh, I did come across it in a book once. It was in Norman Mailer's book, Armies of the Night. He says he micturated on his shoe in one scene. And that's the only other, other than the Lebowski, that's the only other place I've, hmm. I've read it. Well, biologists say micturate sometimes. I'm sure they do. I can tell you that. When um, they're peeing. Well, this is the biologist I'm thinking of is a, you know him probably, is a turtle expert. He studies turtles and frogs, mostly turtles. And you know I what he studies about them? How yeah. they stay frozen all winter and then get thawed out and are still alive. How do they do that? You'd have to ask him. I think it's complicated. I think is it you have. Tim? What's that? Yeah, it's Tim Muir. Okay. I don't trust anything he told me because he told me that um, that whale sperm has blowholes in it, <laughs> little tiny blowholes. And you so, believed him, huh? I did. Well, I was on the bike. I was like, wow, that's wild. <laughs> just so I no longer will believe anything he tells me. <laughs> you shouldn't. Oh, man. He saw a mark and he just did not hesitate to uh, he take advantage of the situation. Hit it hard. <laughs> hard being a mark. I uh, saw a, a friend of mine had a, um, in high school, had a pin that said, I heart Robin, R-O-B-I-N, M-A-R-K, M-A-R-K, um, X, Marks, Robin Marks. And uh, okay. do you know what that means? No. I love Robin Marks. It's what carnies wear. I love oh. robbing Marks. Gotcha. Marks are like victims. Right. Isn't that cool? He dated so, a carny. That's how so, he... It's so specific, though. Yeah. But they, yeah. Anyway, so there it there. is. Um, hey, let's get back to the... the t I have one more question. Okay. Um, about the usefulness issue in literature. And that is, does it have to have a purpose? And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. to, but what about just it isn't, doesn't have a purpose and you can't, and it doesn't, we shouldn't even be trying to defend its usefulness because it just is. And there's a lot of things in the world that don't really have a purpose, a real obvious purpose to human beings, but we can still like them, right? I mean, it just it, it, putting something out in the world is in itself sort of a worthwhile purpose. It, it, it might not, you might, you, you yourself as the writer might not be aware of its purpose. It'll, it'll resonate differently with each reader or with each person, but yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think you even have the right to say what your purpose is. I've read to that, define the purpose. I read this great story one day. Um, I forget the author. The story is called um, Ozzy the Burrow. Uh huh. Um, and uh, oh, the the author's name is Molly McNett. Now now I remember. Let and me write it down so I can hashtag it on the episode. Please do. Uh, it's a it's a story that everybody should read, and it's just really great. It's touching and it's um, funny. Um. But uh, the, the narrator, who you love, and who's a kind of uneducated but very smart and in her own way articulate person, is talking about this burrow mm -hmm. that she names Ozzy. And her dad, her father, who's deceased in the story and kind of letting her live her life finally, this bad father she had, um, always said that burrow, she always wanted a burrow, and he always said they're worthless. And she just said, well, maybe they don't need to have a purpose. Maybe just yeah. the fact that they're pretty to look at. And that their noses are soft. That, that's why she wanted the burrow. And that, that justifies their purpose. So, you know, may, I think literature is, at the very least, they're pretty things. And 
you know, and that's even a kind of an insulting way to talk about literature, or even would suggest it's not, doesn't have a literary quality, but I'm okay with just pretty things being out there, and I would, wouldn't want them to go away, even if you can't find any other use for them. I agree with you, and, and you know, for what it's worth, I happen to know that Molly is one of our most uh, steadfast listeners. Uh, when you started talking about having uh, a use beyond just, you know, being something nice to look at, I thought of Ozzy the Burrow, too, but I thought it would be uh, too self-serving to mention my wife's story, so I didn't mention it. So I'm glad you did, but that's funny that we both thought of that as an example. It, it just shows you how memorable that, that line is. I think you're trying to kind of angle because I like just because your wife probably likes me more than she likes you right now. And, uh, you know, and hey, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean I'm, you know, not trying to get in the way of your marriage or anything, but... uh, Too late. Yeah. (laughs) No, I just think uh, upstaging somebody is is a really funny thing to do. Whenever I make an overture now in the bedroom, she says, you let Kelly make fun of you too much. I'm going to bed. (laughs) That's, that is, um, I'm sorry. I really am sorry if that's true. <laughs> I don't want... And then it gets wild. Oh, okay, good. You guys, it, it goes into some role-playing games of humiliation and stuff. That's good. Gabe, I know you're going to cut that out, but don't. Leave it right in there. <laughs> um. Anyway, that's all my notes on this subject. Okay. What about, uh, you got anything else you want to say about um, oh. the usefulness? I'm going to name three books without commentary that changed my life, utterly changed my life, changed the way I look at life and changed the way I think about my own uh, existence on the planet. They are Ulysses. I'm embarrassed to say them because they're, they're cliche books, but Ulysses, you know, the James Joyce book. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> no. Uh, Ulysses, I believe, is Homer, right? Mm, there is one called that. Mm-hmm. No, Ulysses is – anyway, yeah, I don't know. Anyway uh, – <laughs> Search for Lost Time, Proust, the whole the whole series. It changes the way you look at the world. It really does if you read it all. And a book called Parasite Rex, which is just about um, how it's by Carl Zimmerman. It's just about how parasites uh, really we're just here at the uh, pleasure of the parasites and not vice versa. Really changed the way I looked at stuff. There you go. Proof. And yeah, I, there's. I think that's the underlying thing is that they can utterly change people's lives on an one individual basis and it isn't worth trying to quantify because yeah. its value yeah. is so obvious to anybody who just doesn't need to kind of put it into like a graph or a chart or numbers and um holy shit i think this is the first episode where we answered a question hey 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 good hey but i, I want to call the final segment rwt reading writing teach teaching Okay. You good with that? So we don't have to keep kind of awkwardly trying to... So, RWT. How's the RWT, Dan? You mean... I think every time you say it, we should say... And that stands for reading. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, the, the RWT is awesome. The T in particular is never better this week because it's the final... It's finals week. Well, today Ooh. was Friday. As we record this, it's the, it's the last day of the regular semester. And then we have finals. And that is when the shoe is on the other foot. I finally have the upper hand with these young people, and I'm just thrilled. So I'm in a really good mood on campus. Now they want to be my friend and not vice versa. Woo! How's WRTing? Um, I want, I'm in a, uh, I was invited to be in a, to start up a writer's group. You know what I mean? Like a group, a group of people. Well, you don't live in town. Um, 
somebody who is uh, the uh, an editor at the local paper, like a managing editor kind of person, and really smart and uh, good writer, um, and uh, a guy who is doing it was doing an adjunct thing, and now he's getting into like coding computers for video games and. He's one of those guys with a PhD that's going back to community college to get a coding certificate, you know, and uh, the sign of the times, he's going to be a big success, but he, he's writes <laughs> sci-fi and she has this uh, great uh, story collection. She's getting an, a lot, um, what is it called? Low um, distance learning, not distance learning, yeah, yeah. but low res MFA low res, for, yeah. at Goddard, I think, Autumn Phillips and um, Rob, I remember Rob's last name right now. So sorry about that, Rob. Um, Probably anyway, cool people, and um, it's given me a sounding board for my novel in progress, and uh, so I thought I'd just mention that. I haven't been in a writer's group, like, ever. I mean, graduate school was my writer's group, and and so now I'm uh, actually meeting with people every couple weeks and sharing our work, and it's been a good thing. Yeah. That can be good. I was in one for a while. I really got a lot out of it. Molly was in it, and... Um the writer Chris Mazza was in it and it's, it's always good. And then there's different level people with different levels of, uh, you know, sort of development on their career. So you get different kinds of advice and yeah, good. I'm glad. I hope that uh, works out. Yeah, me too. Okay. God bless Kelly. Yeah. Well, Hey, that exit music is just kicking in and <laughs> that kind of surf rock twang. And so that means we're going to just kind of say goodbye. Right. Here comes Gabe. Gabe is coming and talking about like things. Anyway, see you guys. Thanks Goodbye, for listening. Man. Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Student Radio. Gabe Tucker is our audio engineer, and Sub Atlantic provides the theme music. You can reach Dan and Kelly on Facebook. We always welcome comments, critiques, suggestions, and especially praise. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you hear, do a podcast a solid and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time.